Hello and welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. I'm your host Tarang Gupta and our guest today is Stefan Lenter, co-founder and CEO of Jico. Jico has built a new financial network enabling companies to both store and move money, starting with the power of treasury bills made spendable. Stefan graduated from Caltech with a PhD in applied and computational mathematics and also holds degrees in machine learning and computer science. Prior to founding Jico, he was a managing director at Goldman Sachs Securities Division for almost a decade. During his tenure at Goldman Sachs, he first-hand witnessed the inequities of the banking system, including threats to the safety of consumer deposits during the 2008 financial crisis. This inspired his mission to modernize the banking system and build a safer, more efficient financial future for all. Join us as we explore how Jico is unlocking the power of treasury bills for businesses, startups and consumers, building a vertically integrated delevered bank. YT bills provide a higher yield than bank accounts. Jico's 40 million dollar series B raised last year and Stefan's thoughts on disruption opportunity in payments. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi Stefan, happy Friday. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thanks for having us. Of course. So, where are you calling in from? California, the Bay Area. And how's the weather in California today? Nice and sunny, warm, not too cold, not too hot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm jealous. It's it's been raining since last night in Philly. Let's dive right into the questions. Uh, could you start by giving us an overview of your career and what got you got you involved in fintech? Yeah, uh, I got into finance by accident. Um, my I was trained up in mathematics and, and physics and computer science in France, came to the U.S. to get a Ph.D. at Caltech and thought I was going to work for Caltech, JPL, NASA, or other things, but got hired into finance in 2007. Like many of other mathematicians, we were hired for uh, pricing derivatives on Wall Street in around 2007, 2008. So I got there a little bit by accident um, and then had a, a nice career at Goldman for the next 10 years. Um, As part of that, though, uh, witnessed 2008 firsthand, so it was a very eye-opening experience, which I'm happy to tell you more about. Um, and some of what I saw there is why eventually I decided to, with others, launch Chico and and build this up because we all felt the need for something different. So, from a PhD to a decade at Goldman, and then you went, left to work briefly in aviation manufacturing, if I'm not wrong, and then you went on to start Chico. That seems like a very diverse career. Why did you make each of these moves? Uh, Goldman was because it was it sounded like a really interesting place to apply some of the math that we were doing for you know pricing derivatives and options with transactions in the market. Uh, the the way you normally price options is looking at um, beautiful theory, but there's there's usually friction when you trade the stocks behind the delta, and there was interesting problems we were trying to solve at Goldman, and I was hired to do that and. Um, at the peak of the derivatives trading, so very interesting problems. That's why I joined. And it turned out that once I joined the job, it was a very different uh, environment because Lehman went down, Goldman was next, and we had to work on the mainframe and fix uh, a, a number of issues uh, straight at the core. And it was very different than what I thought. So then I decided to stay on and just learn about actual finance and hands-on, roll up my sleeves and work on the trading desks, which I did for about nine years. I touched. Uh, a lot of the products we have there, from ETFs to to total return swaps and, and and options, of course, and learn a lot, not a lot about banking. Um, always a little 
uh, surprised by the lack of efficiency. Uh, if you look at the back office, and Goldman's pretty efficient, but by extrapolation, you have these all these banks with legacy technology, lots of processes, manual operations, and always felt like they're not operating like a tech company. Um, if Amazon was running in the space, it'd be very different. You know, we check every package, you know exactly where everything is in real time with robots. So the engineering part of of, of me always felt like we were not efficient and should fix it. Um, so that's why I eventually left. Um, because it felt like there was an opportunity to build a a, uh, a new kind of bank that was designed for for scale. Um, in between, um, well, I, I kept contact with Caltech, so I did some work there. At, at the end of uh, my, my tenure at Goldman, I, I did work a little bit at Caltech, indeed, on some problems for aerospace that had to do with my PhD, because I, I was still um, still had a foot in there. And there's a hobby on the side. I'm still involved with some aerospace projects, but that's really on the side. Um, the Look, I you ask why, it's just curiosity and interesting things that one gets to do. So I've been lucky. Fascinating. So let's talk about Gico and the inspiration behind it and what, what exactly is that you do? Yes. So Gico came from the desire of building a, a very efficient banking uh, platform. And uh, having worked at Goldman for 10 years, like I just described, it was very clear to me um, that the world needed a new financial institution that was vertically integrated, built bottoms up, like Amazon, but as a bank, uh, designed for efficiency, scale, and kind of solving the problems that we all saw in 2008. Banks traditionally are not designed for scale. They're lenders. They're here to finance, to give you loans. To do that, they have to take a lot of risk. They're very focused on those risks, and therefore, they don't have time to make payments very efficient. They don't have time to grow very fast because they have to be very careful with the loan books. And so when we looked at the problem, we saw fintechs, we saw what crypto was attempting, and to us, we figured that no matter what you're trading, how things move, it's always regulated. Money is as old as the world. At this point, regulators know what to look for. And so one of the key things we said, let's build an actual bank. Let's become a bank. Let's go get the license. Let's not skirt on the outside. Let's go straight to the bottom where the money is really, really held. And let's solve the money storage problem. Let's make that really efficient so that we could, as an institution that you can trust with technology, store lots of money for our customers at scale, very cheaply. And from there on, then like like an Amazon, from books to CDs, once you can do storage, then you go into payments and eventually you do you do. You do other things. So we that's how we started was with this desire to build a very efficient platform that could store money and move it. Um, it was a few years ago. We had to go buy a bank. We had to go set up a broker-dealer. We had to build the technology platforms bottoms up, ledgers, cloud infrastructure, all of that ourselves, processing capabilities for ACH, wires, debit cards, all in-house. We don't depend on a lot of third parties. We try to do it all in-house, fully integrated. As a result, our costs are much lower and we can offer a really efficient and safe product to the world right now, um, which I'm happy to describe a little bit more if, uh, if you want. Oh, for sure. Um, well, so the building block at Jico is a treasury bill. If you think of storage, what do you, what do you have as choice as a retail, or even as a corporate treasurer, you've got bank accounts, which don't earn much and are a little risky because you're, you're depositing money at a bank that may still fail above FDIC insurance. You've got, so by that, I, it's, it's regular deposits and term deposits. You've got money market funds, which are funds. So you invest in a fund and the fund goes and buys stuff. Treasury bills, similar other instruments, and also lends money to banks and what's that, what are called repo and all sorts of other things. 
um, you don't have many choices and none of them are, are, are very smooth or very easy to, like bank accounts are, are, are fluid. You can transact on them, but they've got the FDIC insurance limits and the rates are pretty low. Um, what we offer as a core product is it, the fluidity of a bank account coupled with treasury bills investments. So a GICO account gives you both um, spending capabilities. You can spend like a bank account with ACH, wires and others, but any penny you bring in the account, whether it's a dollar or a billion dollars, it's immediately swept and is invested on your behalf in treasury bills. So now you have, you become a proud owner of American treasury bills. You're funding the government and you're making in the current environment up to 5% state tax exempt on your, on your balances. So the, the account at the same time is fully fluid. You can spend against it. We have the capabilities, the infrastructure, the trading desk to make T-bills purchases um, and selling uh, fully automated and streamlined. And so it's a very, very simple product. That's why people like it because they don't have to, to dig very deep. It's very simple. Um, it's easy to set up. And now you have your corporate cash or your retail your retail money invested at all times in T-bills. And yet you can spend them as if they were in a bank account. That is so cool. And I have two follow-ons to that. First is why pick T-bills? Why not pick something like a bond, right? And second, as you said that you had you built the entire infra in-house. So what was the ta- time lag for that? How long did it take you from the day you started building to the di- day you finally went live? Um, I'll answer the second question in a second. The uh, YT bills. Well, because you have to go back to what money is and where money actually resides. If you have money at a bank account, you've just lent money to the bank. What does the bank do with your money? Well, the first thing they buy the actual liquidity currency that banks have amongst themselves to know that they're liquid and that you can trust the bank if you're not a bank is to see how many T-bills they have. The T-bill is a very short-term bond. It's uh, issued by the U.S. government. It's the risk-free asset pretty much because uh, it's the U.S. government and they have a fair amount of, of, of purchasing power when they when they raise debt. Um, and uh, that's that's the, that's the, the core instrument that, that banks buy for their own liquidity as a starting point. Beyond that, of course, after that, at some point in the balance sheet, they go and buy, um, issue mortgages and, and all sorts of other things. But the core liquidity is treasury bills. It's not really cash. Cash doesn't really exist. So we, I saw that at Goldman, everyone in banking knows that. What we realized was with our trading capabilities is we could offer that directly to people. So instead of me depositing money at the bank, then the bank buys T-bills and later does more stuff. Well, what if I could have T-bills directly? They're earning 5% now. The bank has to make a spread, so they always give me less. The idea was to create a transactional account powered by T-bills. But we didn't want to introduce risk. On the contrary, we wanted to make it as safe as possible uh, in a way that if there's another 2008, if there's already systemic issues, you'd have a platform that people can really trust because whatever they have there is liquid, is safe, it's transactional. That's why we picked T-bills, not other bonds, corporate bonds or municipal bonds or other things. We really went for the risk-free asset or as close as we could to it. And coming to the second part of the question, right? What are the yeah. components that sort of make Jiko work and, and how long did it take you to like put all of that in place? Well, it's it's been iterative, right? Um, I think our first fully integrated transaction was in 2018. So we started in 2016. So about two years to, to set all the infrastructure bottoms up from the cloud infrastructure with Kubernetes and all the other layers to uh, to ACH processing and, and, and card processing. Um, I think November 2018 is when we had the first card swipe at the Ben and Jerry's in Berkeley where he, I, I bought ice cream and um, I sold my T-bills against it, all fully automated. So it was the trading, 
um, the liquidation of T-bills in real time and then clearing of transaction on the Discover network. So about two years to get to that MVP and then a lot of hardening behind it. Um, yeah, several years of work for sure. And talk to me about your business model, right? How do you, what's the main source of revenue for Gico and then what's your biggest cost center? The biggest source of revenue is we pretty much have one right now. It's uh, our, the, the simple asset under management fee that we charge on each account. We charge a basis point a month on the balances, so 12 basis points a year. That's our revenue. And so that scales very nicely as we as we just gather assets. Um, we're not like a bank, right? We don't take money, lend it out, make a, a hefty thread. It's just a one basis point. Um, that's our revenue source. Everything else is, there's no other fees. There's no, there's no, um, no commissions. We're, we're not charging account fees or analysis fees, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, just an AUM fee. Um, the other, um, so that's for, that's for revenues. You were asking cost centers. Well, um, we're a tech company that you can look at us two ways, either a bank that has really modern technology and, and, and scale or a tech company that happens to have, uh, banking licenses. So by that token, we have a fair amount of engineers. We're building, uh, we're building and, uh, have had to invest a lot in the software. So that's been, what's been consuming most of, of the capital for a while was the build around the product. Um, and now there's also growth capital to, to add salespeople and grow the business like a, like a normal, um, like a normal growth company. Um, a little bit of overhead on the legal side, obviously we're regulated, but you know, what we don't have and don't need is, Regulatory capital, like a like a normal bank, we don't have to keep shoring up tier one capital as we grow, because we're delevered. That's the beauty of the T bill model. Interesting, and I would assume that the interest rate changes would not impact your revenue in any significant way, right? Because if the increase or the decrease is passed onto the to the depositors, exactly. That you you got it. The rate is the rate. That's what people will get on T bills, and when rates are high, you get a high yield before the banks even adjust and. You know, we've seen it over the last year. T-bills immediately follow the Fed. Um, bank deposits are not necessarily. I don't. I don't know of any checking account out there right now that can give you four point eight percent or or close to that. Um, it takes time. So the T-bills float, and historically, they they tend to be always uh, above uh, most national savings and checking account rates because that's the first, because banks buy T-bills themselves and they need to make a spread on it. So the direct product um, has a high yield. Relative to everything else, um, and it's directly facing the governments, and on a risk-adjusted basis, it's a great, uh, great instrument. And talking about the customer part, right? Do you see yourself more as a B two C play or more of a B two B play? And and how do you approach these different segments in terms of customer acquisition? Yeah, I would say we have three main segments. Um, on the on the first, there's the there's the the uh, business account angle. So we've got. It's a beautiful product for a corporation. Think about a VC-backed company that just raised $20, $50, $200 million. Where do you put that? Last thing you want to do is start looking at all sorts of uh, corporate brochures and complicated documents and figure out which bank you're going to trust more. Here you've got T-Bills. It's safe. It's a very simple interface. We can onboard people in a in a day or two, and they, they now have T-Bills. A click of a button, it goes back to their regular bank account, and it's safer than most other products and very easy to explain to your board. So it's a perfect product for Silicon Valley bank growth companies. And that's where we're seeing a fair amount of traction. Um, the second segment is large corporate treasurers, large balances that are cash rich. Historically, those have dependent on money market funds and term deposits. And here we're giving them a, an alternative that has a different risk profile. 
in some sense, it's less risky. You're not facing the U.S. government directly. The assets are all custodied at the Bank of New York Mellon, so there's no risk for, no real counterparty risk against GECO. The T-bills are safe, fully segregated. And so that's, that's the second uh, large, large uh, segment. And a few weeks, you'll see some interesting announcement. We've struck some very interesting um, distribution deals there with corporate treasury platforms that will give some of the world's largest corporate treasurers access to our product with a click of a button and the tools they, they use every day. So that's for the B2B B segment, if you will. So we grow that mostly through it's a mix of referrals, um, word of mouth that's, that's doing very well right now, as well as API distribution. And then on the retail side, we have built a retail product. That's what we started with. Part of what we always wanted to do was to give every American the ability to store T-bills at home without thinking about it, earn that yield, and then spend them when they need to. Um, that product is built. We have an app. We have about 3,000 people actively using it, and it's growing. We're not marketing it, though. Consumer acquisition, as FinTech has shown over the last few years, is expensive and hard. We're just letting that product grow as a courtesy to whoever wants it. So for all your listeners, of course, they're welcome to download it and try it and store emails for free. Um, but the retail account, just like the corporates, are distributable through APIs, and that we're seeing huge demand for. We recently announced a deal with Public, the broker-dealer, and a number of others are coming uh, with similar requests to embed the GECO product inside their offering to offer the fluidity of T-bills, the spendability of it, including cards, into their products. And so the B2C portion is more of a B2B2C uh, play with APIs. That is a huge area of growth for us, uh, especially in the high-yield environment that we see right now. Interesting. Do you see a growth opportunity in which you can like offer, let's say, a higher deposit rate at the cost of higher risk? For example, let's say you're dealing just with U.S. treasuries right now but you might go to an emerging economy and invest in their treasuries and give a higher sort of interest rate, but at the cost of higher risk as well. Or is that something that would need a different sort of like licensing and integration? That's a very good question. Um, so our goal is, you know, to, to stay very focused, so storage, transactions. So as you think about that, at some point you go global. So um, there are jurisdictions to which we have started to talk to in Europe, um, there are places in Asia and South America that are very interested in what we're doing as well. Um, there are licensing considerations around that. Of course, we're regulated. Therefore, each place we go, we'd have to acquire licenses or find the right partners. Um, the only reason we would, but the philosophy should always be the same. We're trying to give people the risk-free rates in their local currency access to a very stable way to store money in locally. Um, and then... So if we were to go international at some point, yes, you could imagine us having European securities growing at euro rates uh, in Europe, T-bills in the US, um, Brazilian short-term govies in Brazil. Um, risk profile is a little different in each, but it's still within the jurisdiction. You're facing the government that can print money and has, in some sense, control over its, over its, uh, its destiny that way. Um, that's about the extent of the kind of products we'd like to offer. It's, it's, our goal is really to store money with the risk-free rate around it. And then the ability to move it eventually across borders, therefore, at some point, have multi-currency capabilities for our customers. But we don't even have to go very far for now. We're getting a lot of demand from foreigners for T-bills as well. So just the U.S. product as is, is being sought actively by, by partners that are coming to us from Latin America, from Asia as well. Everyone wants T-bills right now. They're yielding 5%. It is the risk-free asset globally. It's dollars. So that, with that alone, we have a lot that we can do for, for quite a while. Also, you raised a big Series B round in October last year. And it, it's an interesting point, time to raise because a lot of fintechs were already in a downturn at that point in time, right? 
So do you see this as more of a strategic race to make sure that you don't run out of cash for the next, let's say, one year? Or is it to primarily to fund upgrade infra or fund expansion plans? It's a little bit of both, right? We, we're aggressively now, we, we are very counter-cyclical. Our product is really relevant in the current market. has always been relevant, but right now with rates the way they are, it's, you know, we, we, are, we stand out pretty uniquely um, as a very safe haven. Um, we're also not levered. We don't lend to others. You don't have to worry about counterparty risk. This is a very stable and solid platform for corporate and retail money. <coughs> so we raised to make sure that we could deliver to the market uh, quickly. Uh, given the demand, we've had to, we just, last week, we had to turn our, 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 our corporate product and put it on a wait list. We can't onboard everyone at this point. So um, that's, that's how much demand we're seeing. Um, so it's it's that, and plus we're regulated. We do need we we do need to have some cash on hands, of course. So it was being it was also part of a prudent race to keep the company funded. And my next question might be of special interest to our listeners: Is Chico hiring? If yes, what do you look for in people you work with? Yes, we're hiring. Uh, we're still relatively small, about fifty people. Uh, we're hiring. Uh, our core focus right now: we're hiring. Um, uh, well, we're looking for a, a head of compliance. Um, we're looking for uh, some legal legal support as well, and uh, and salespeople. So sales and, and partnerships is uh, an area of active growth. So um, especially in the Bay Area. So if there's talent uh, looking to sell a great product right now, um, give us a shout. Um, we we are hiring. And switching over to the next segment that is like talking about the fintech industry overall from a more macro perspective, what are some white spaces or opportunity areas that you see within fintech? And also, do you think there are certain segments within fintech, let's say lending or, or, or payments that are primed for disruption? Yes, uh, this is a very good question. Fintech is very broad, right? In some sense, there's so many things in there. So the white space we still see is what well, we've done a vertically integrated delevered bank that's focused entirely on clean storage and eventually payments. We're not aware of many efforts like it. Um, and so we kind of want to believe that our approach, I like to call it the Dropbox of money. That's the way to think about Gco. It's cloud-based and has scale, just like the cloud. Um, that the storage part has been underestimated for years. Rates were at zero. Who cares about counterparty risk? You're right. And everything was so rosy. That's changed. So in the current environment, um, we are approaches particularly relevant. So that's certainly an area of, uh, of focus. Um, it extends to payments because what, what's the job of payments is to make sure money gets from point A to point B. Historically, that means from bank A to bank B. And if you think of the complexities involved, then we had a white paper that we wrote at some point around this. A deposit's a loan to a bank. So if I'm paying you, I have money, say, at Wells Fargo. You have money at Citi. When I'm paying you, but it's really we're reassigning a loan that I've made to 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 Wells, to Wells that is now turned into a loan from you to City. It's an extremely complicated transaction that networks like Visa help facilitate. It's it's complicated. So payment is still very fragmented. There's 11,000 institutions in the U.S. The U.S. alone, we've got so many different networks. We've got ACH and Fedwires, and these these things go through. Now there's attempts for real-time payments. There's PayPal and Visa and all these places. It's still highly fragmented. So payments is an area that um, that I think is still um, primed for a fair amount of disruption. If, for example, you have a common layer that everyone can store money on, there's a lot you can do with that. So it's definitely a place we're interested in playing in. Lending, lending is always evolving. There's always more data out there. Um, that's not a place we're, we're going to play in for a long time. 
Uh, we have nothing to lend because we don't have your money to lend. We've invested it on your behalf. So it's not prime for Jico yet. Um, there's always more innovation there as you get, you get AI, you get more, more data, uh, different ways to, to profile people and get more and more data. Are they charging their battery or they're not? That tells you a lot of, of how disciplined they are and whether you should extend them credit, things like this. But um, that's not an area we're going to be too actively looking at. And lenders, lenders know what they do in general. Banks, banks do that relatively well historically. So probably less of an area for prime disruption. Um, but payments, we think, is still has a lot of, lot of opportunities. And sort of like a flip side to that question, do you think there are segments that you're bearish on? For example, in the recent correction, some some segments like buy now, pay later took a, took a heavy beating, right? So do you think there are certain areas that they will never really reach the pre-sort of correction optimism? Or do you feel that this downturn is temporary and, and all of them have scope to grow? I think some have scope to grow. I mean, the reason they exist is because, and they're, they're still around, is because there's a real need. Not everyone needs to, the construct of a credit card and a plastic piece of, of one size fit all is is antiquated. You have way more data now. You're connected wherever you go. So the idea that you can do much more targeted lending uh, as 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 your digital makes a lot of sense. But it's like everything in fintech. There's been too much, too much compiling, too much free money, and so now the corrections are there. Some will some will definitely survive, and and it's still the future uh, for a lot of credit. Um, but well, it may it may take a while for the corrections to completely percolate. Um, the one thing you did ask about white space, I still personally think that one of the biggest areas is global standards. I mean, payments, banking, every country is its own mess. And you think ACH, then you go to Europe, it's a completely different filing system. And I'm even in amongst the countries there. But part of the, the more we can create a, a couple of global standards and have uh, some global platforms, that that's a really interesting opportunity. And at least at GECO, what we try to do always is to abstract all the regulatory thing away so that from within, it looks like the same thing. And if we want to export at some point, have APIs in Europe, they should look exactly like the APIs in the US. So a developer that wants to process payments on the GECO network globally shouldn't have to worry about the nuances. Abstract that away, create a global layer. That's kind of what crypto did, and that's why it went so fast. There's still a massive need for, for standards. We are a global world. For my last segment, what I'd like to do is introduce you more as a person to our listeners. So <laughs> my first question to you is that, what is the fun fact about you that most people don't know? I started a salsa club at Caltech. So, you know, Caltech is not exactly known for... A lot of dancing, but when I joined there, I had, had some experience dancing with friends in, in, in France and others. And so we decided to start a club at Caltech and I had long hair and we did a lot of parties and we had a lot of fun as scientists uh, dancing salsa. So that's a little fact that uh, most people don't know. That sounds fun though. My next question is, who was Jiko's first user and what helped you succeed from the zero to one phase? And I know you mentioned that you were the one who did the first beta transaction, but apart from you. Um... <laughs> Yeah, apart from me, there was, if well, uh, for a while, it was uh, friends and family, um, meaning investors and others. So, on, Because we, we built this gradually. So it started with us testing the product, extending to friends and family. We grew the retail footprint to, like I said, about 3,000 accounts. There was some influential influential users in there. And then we, then we had corporates. So um, depending on how you look at what the first uh, user would be, I think... The one that's worth mentioning to give you a sense of size of the platform is what we did in 21, I believe, around the, when we realized that, you know, on, on the app, we give 1% cash back to users when they swipe their card. Someone realized um, that if they paid their taxes with a GECO account using the GECO card um, on the Discover network, we were getting 1% back on the full transaction. And 
we looked into it. There was no caps. So 1% back on your taxes, that's a that's an interesting value prop. So that's when we got some real users that opened accounts and, and for, for a short period paid taxes. Uh, before 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 things uh, changed a little bit, it, it just had this broke. We broke some systems on the IRS side. It had it had interesting implications, but we uh, we had fun. We processed a five million dollar payment uh, to the IRS on a single debit. We believe that was the largest debit transaction ever recorded on any network debit. Um, so I would count that as maybe the biggest single user in retail and a very uh, a very fun one. And as you were scaling from zero to one, right? What are some challenges that you face that you did not expect? Well, there's the usual there's the usual things as as a company, right? Finding your market fit. You think you have something that everyone will want, and maybe it's a little different than what you that the market response may be different, even if it's logical. So we we quickly discovered that consumer was a difficult, um, not an easy path to go on, and we'd have to really invest a lot to get direct user adoption on a direct product when the product when the market itself was crowded. I think about two years ago, everyone was going after the consumer, spending $500 acquisition costs. We never had or wanted to raise the capital for that. So that was definitely a, an important step for us to realize, hold on, all our investments have been on the infrastructure from the ledgers to the banking banking, banking uh, license and the broker-dealer license and our, all our capabilities to do things like $5 million payment on the debit card with no liquidity constraints because it's backed by T-bills. That's, that's really the crux of what Jico can do. So then for us on the path was to figure out what's the best way to monetize all this without spending a fortune or going uh, going the wrong way. So pulling pulling away from direct consumer, deciding to leave it open because that's growing on its own, but not make that the primary. Instead, go for the best market fit, which is corporates and then API distribution for other fintechs that are already established but need high yield products. That that was a very important decision point for us when we realized that. I know you're not a banker, but I think this this question can still still go. Work-life balance has been a big topic recently. My take is you still have to try to take time uh, for yourself and uh, for your family. It's really important. I have three children. They need me at home. Uh, it doesn't matter how much I work. I'm needed. That's easier said than done. Uh, so it's just a constant uh, reminder for everyone to try to respect that and try to be flexible for your employees. We try to do that. We're pretty remote. People work really hard at GECO. Uh, we don't have to discipline or ask for people to work. They just work hard. So it's more about reminding them to actually take their time off um, and and come refresh to work, I think. Uh, I've seen it too often, uh, and I do that mistake very often myself, but it's important to take time, source, and come back refreshed so you can deliver your best. All right, Stefan. On that note, I'll let you get back to work. But thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the What in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at What in Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta.